This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is In Legal Terms, the show all about you and your rights. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Hello, Professor Gershon. Hello, Liz, and I hope you had a great Mother's Day weekend and you know, graduation weekend for a lot of people. And so it's kind of an exciting time. Um, and uh, I hope uh, your week is going well. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about a really uh, important topic, and we're fortunate to have two outstanding guests on the show. Um, We have Andre Degree, who is the public defender for the state of Mississippi, and Professor Frank Rosenblatt, who teaches constitutional law, evidence, and international law at Mississippi College School of Law. Um, Good morning to each of you, um, and it's it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, Could you talk a little bit about your backgrounds and how you became interested in um, capital crimes, uh, and defending capital crimes, Andre, and also, uh, your work on, uh, briefs on capital crimes, uh, Professor Rosenblatt. And. Okay. I'll jump in first. Um, so I have been involved in, in capital crimes and capital defense, um, from when I was in law school, uh, which was a while back and, uh, did mostly death penalty work for the majority of my career and um, had done some juvenile, uh, represented some youth people under the age of 18 in death penalty cases when the U.S. Supreme Court abolished uh, that. I thought I wouldn't have to represent a kid again. And uh, and fortunately, that uh, that changed in 2012 um, when the Supreme Court intervened again and said that you, we couldn't automatically sentence these youngsters to life without parole. And that sort of, that's what gets us here today. Craig, what about you? I know you, you've written uh, briefs on, on this, on this topic and, and uh, are, are definitely interested in juvenile life without parole. How did that interest uh, come into play? Yeah. So unlike Andre, who has been in the thick of this for uh, many years and has been personally involved with the developments, I'm more of an outsider looking in. I spent much of my uh, career as a a military attorney. I was a military defense counsel and then uh, moved to Mississippi in 2020 and uh, took up uh, other criminal defense matters, including um, helping out with one of the uh, juvenile LWAP cases. And uh, now I'm a law professor for two years. So, um, you know, these are interesting issues to talk about in evidence and constitutional law. And, you know, we've been following uh, Andre's work and and developments in the state. Well, if if y'all would talk a little bit about what exactly is uh, juvenile life without a parole. And you said it's LWAP. uh, How how did that law become about and what, what is the law? Well, maybe I'll start out. Um, we used to uh, impose the the death penalty on juveniles up until about uh, 2005. 
And that was a time when the Supreme Court was more willing to um, look at evolving standards of decency in the Eighth Amendment and even look at the practices of other countries. And the Supreme Court uh, realized that we were in some unsavory company with uh, countries such as Iran, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo in allowing the execution of juveniles. So that became uh, an unconstitutional Eighth Amendment violation in uh, 2005. And then the cases that Andre was talking about, um, these talk, then uh, life without parole became the, the uh, harshest uh, sentence. Um, but in a couple of cases, the Supreme Court even sought to regulate that. They declared that even the LWAP is basically the equivalent of uh, the death penalty uh, for juveniles. And, uh, and they've declared that uh, this should be an uncommon uh, sentence that is reserved for only the uh, rarest offenders, those whose um, conduct um, reflects a, a permanent incorrigibility. So I guess the state of the law there was that the Supreme Court recognized that you know, states could and would have this uh, uh, regime that would allow for LWAP uh, for juveniles. And it, it seemed to be, you know, maybe there's some 17-year-old 17 out there who's like a Hannibal Lecter. There's no chance of this person being able to uh, ever, um, you know, become uh rehabilitated. Um, so the door was uh, kept narrowly ajar with that. And of course, with that opening, many states um, had a rather fulsome regime of allowing this. There are 23 states that uh, now allow uh, LWAP sentences, including uh, Mississippi. And in fact, Mississippi played a role in opening that door a little bit wider. And I guess I'll hand it over to Andre uh, for the Jones case and anything else about you know how we got here. Yeah. Well, um, before I talk about Jones, which is the, the most recent U.S. Supreme Court case, I, I think, you know, the, that we jump back to the to really to the 80s and, and early 90s, because to me, I think we got here with with juvenile life without parole and just the sentencing of juveniles as adults with uh, it, it was something that happened infrequently. And then the the super predator myth was put out there and and politicians and we had a, an increase in crime connected to the crack e epidemic and it really wasn't juvenile crime it wasn't youth but it it really the this notion of a super predator being the these coming up young teenagers and and we started treating children more like adults and more were going automatically uh, into the adult system. And, and so at the same time, the tough on crime, taking parole away, truth in sentencing was, was the mantra. And, and so where we had parole eligibility until 1995 for everyone, that went away just as we're treating more kids as adults. And so that's really how we ended up with with 85 kids automatically sentenced to life without parole, serving those sentences in 2012 when the Miller case came down from the U.S. Supreme Court um, and said you can't automatically sentence them. So, um, you know, what we've struggled with really for the last 10 years um, is since, well, now we're on, we're almost on year, the 11th anniversary of Miller is what we do with those, how we handle those 
sentences, not just for the 85 or so people that had to be resentenced, but for uh, going forward. Um, and, and the reference of the Jones case, taking language from these U.S. Supreme Court decisions, uh, it seemed pretty clear. I mean, they, they explicitly said these life without parole sentences, sort of equating them with death sentences for adults, sh- should be rare. They should be left to that permanently incorrigible uh, person or, or kid. And, and, but there was no procedure set. And, and the, the argument that Jones put forth that ended up in the U.S. Supreme Court after being rejected by the Mississippi courts was that there, there had to at least be whoever was doing the sentencing had to make a finding of should have to make a finding of permanent incorrigibility um, just so so you could review them. And, and much of this was borrowing on the litigation from really beginning in the late 60s on the death penalty, that there should be a way that people in courts can objectively evaluate and say, this juvenile is deserving, this one is not. Um, and so it, it is you know, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected what what they characterized as an expansion. Uh, What Jones was arguing was that it was not an expansion at all. It was just making making sense of the law we had. So uh, so that's where we where we ended up is. We're we and we can talk more about this in, in a little bit about what's the procedure to determining which juveniles get life without parole, and which don't. Ooh, and we just had Mother's Day. What a what a thing for a, a mother have to face uh, and for, for the kids, too. Not everybody has a chance to listen to our whole show live, so if you have missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show from our website, mpbonline.org. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We strive to keep you updated with what's going on legally in Mississippi. And state public defender Andre Degree has helped us out a few times. On November 15th of 2022, he discussed uh, public defenders. And September 14th of 2021, he helped us discuss the reforms for the public defender system. And February 9th, of 2021, he helped us learn about the bail system in Mississippi. I'll have links to all these podcasts on the information for this podcast. Today, we're talking about juvenile life without parole with our guests, Professor Frank Rosenblatt from Mississippi College and our state public defender, Andre Degree. Yes, well, yeah, we uh, we mentioned uh, at the beginning uh, or during that last segment that that term incorrigibility, and could y'all talk a little bit about that? I mean, Andre, we we were talking during the break. What is incorrigibility, and have you ever dealt with a client that you would really say was incorrigible? You know, it's I don't know exactly what it means, and that uh, that is part of the struggle of the Jones case is that we can't. And I think that 
the courts that push or the prosecutors that push back against having a finding of incorrigibility said, well, you know, what is it? We don't know what it is. And and I think that it's so hard to define because it's it is it may not exist at all. And, and I have represented not just a lot of the clients I've represented or, or beyond that area of brain development that we talk about with the youth that we're talking about. It, it, we know that it goes to about the brain still developing at 25 or 26. And I've represented people who have done terrible things and, and there's no, you know, there's no other way of putting it. They in, in their late twenties and even thirties. And then you see them 15 or 20 years later and they are completely different people. They have, they've changed their lives. So I, I don't know that I've ever in, in 35 years of, of working in the criminal legal system, met somebody that I said, you know, this, this person is never, never going to change. And, and Frank, you, you dealt with, you wrote a brief on a case that uh, dealt with someone with diminished capacity, really. Um, was, was that treated as incorrigibility or did that have a role? You know, it's really the opposite. Rather than the state proving incorrigibility, there's just no resistance on the other side to showing that this person has potential. So first of all, these children, these aren't the ones who go to St. Andrews or Regent School. These are these are very poor kids, um, very disadvantaged, often with mental illness, and they certainly can't pay for a lawyer. So we're in a state where only four out of 82 counties will provide full-time public defense. So that means that when these you know poor and disadvantaged kids are showing up, they get a part-time defender who may not have any sort of incentive to want to uh, provide a, a vigorous defense. So that means rather than investigating the facts of whether the crime actually occurred, it's a race towards a guilty plea. And that means in the all-important sentencing phase, which should be where we really flesh out, is this an incorrigible person or is there something there? Um, there's a, a, a lack of uh, expertise and a lack of the uh, the background about the person that may um, assist a, a judge in 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 making a, a well-informed decision about uh, whether LWAP uh, could be possible. We have a caller. Let's go to Biloxi and speak with Craig. Craig, thanks so much for calling in to In Legal Terms today. What's your comment or question? Okay, good morning. Uh, I was wondering, uh, juvenile records are sealed. At what age is that actually begin? And, and are, they, are all types of crimes covered in that? And uh, if the juvenile is sentenced to life, at what time is, is that ever accessible public? Andre, do so, you have any information yeah, about that? Well, I I think I understood the question is in that just when, at what age can a uh, can a person be prosecuted or in this case a kid be prosecuted as an adult? Um, no, and, and he was a, he was asking uh, when are juvenile records released to the public? Is it is it ever when someone has uh, committed a, a crime as a juvenile, are they ever those records ever released to the public, even if someone did get life without parole? Well, it, so if the person is sentenced, so they're they're handled in criminal court, it doesn't matter that they're a juvenile. Those records are open to everyone, uh, just as if they were an adult. Uh, we, if we're talking about the records from prior adjudications in youth court or prior involvement in youth court, 
that's available to prosecutors in every case. Um, and so if we're talking about a kid who's who's either transferred to adult court or in a, in a capital case, a case that could carry life without parole would automatically begin in adult court. Those records are available to the, the sentencers, uh, the judges, the, the prosecutors, of course, the defense. Um, now, whether or not it would be publicly available, if it comes out as part of the criminal prosecution that would result in a life sentence, then it would be public at that point. Uh, but it generally, uh, the, the what happens in youth court, um, not a criminal court, in youth court with a juvenile would be forever secret. But, uh, but if, if it involves what we're talking about, the juvenile life without parole, that a kid later ends up before his 18th birthday being prosecuted in criminal court, those records would be open to the court and to prosecutors and, and would be subject to the same public disclosure as anything else coming out in a criminal court. Craig, did that answer okay, your question? Is, yes, ma'am. That answers mine. No more questions. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. We appreciate you calling in. We're very pleased that uh, State Public Defender Andre Degree and Professor Frank Rosenblatt from Mississippi College were able to schedule some time to be with us today. Thank you, guys. Such an important topic, Liz. And, and uh, you know, one, one question I think really um, that, that maybe Andre alluded to a second ago is when, when you talk about life without parole for a juvenile, does that always involve what would be a capital crime? Well, it, it would because a capital crime in Mississippi is is defined as or capital offense is any crime that carries a life sentence or the death penalty. Um, I, and as we talked about before, you as a if you're younger than 18, you can't get the death penalty. So it, it would um, it would be when we talk about capital offense or capital crime, it is anything that carries a life sentence. So. And I think uh, Frank alluded to this earlier. There was between abolishing the death penalty and and abolishing automatic life without parole, the court addressed non-homicide cases where there wasn't a death involved. And they said, you can't give a life without parole sentence. So, for instance, you could get a life sentence for armed robbery or rape in Mississippi, but with a that would that could not be applied to someone under the 18 at, at the time of the offense. Uh, be, and that's the Graham case, which which abolished life without parole altogether for juvenile offenders. Okay, well, that's, that's really helpful. And, and um, now, what about what would be the difference between someone who gets life without parole? And I assume that means for their natural life versus someone who at least has the possibility of parole. How could how, how different could that uh, incarceration be for them? You know, the uh, Supreme Court spoke about that uh, some in the in the Miller case that when you sentence someone who is 15 years old, that that's a, com- a sentence of a completely different nature than sentencing a 40 year old. Uh, the amount of time that is remaining, the chance that that person will change in the uh, in the intervening years. The possibility of uh, rehabilitation. So, with uh, with the possibility of say a fifteen year old 
who gets a a life with a sentence, there's really something to uh, to look forward to. And as the um, as the eligibility uh, for parole comes up, it could often come as uh, as as quick as ten years uh, after service, and then the person is uh, still has a lot of uh, life ahead of them. Versus a life without the possibility of parole leaves open, just like the name says, no possibility other than some sort of extraordinary intervention like uh, a pardon from uh, the state governor. And that's sort of what Justice uh, uh, Kavanaugh was uh, seemed to place a lot of weight on, that, well, this really isn't the end of the story for these people, because there's always the possibility of some sort of extraordinary relief like that. So I have a question. We talk about, you know, life without parole, and then you talk about the opposite of of having a sentence do i only know from tv and movies do people get the 99 year sentences and is that something separate from a life without parole and can you have an extreme sentence or multiple 50 year sentences added on to different accounts so it's essentially life without parole for juveniles yeah, that's uh, we don't have the 99 year sentence that a lot of jurisdictions like Louisiana and I think Tennessee have. Uh, but you can get stacked sentences. You can get convicted of different crimes and sentenced consecutively on each one. So uh, there is a there's someone serving a 120 year sentence that's that's on our one of the lists we track for uh, we call them virtual life. So the person still really essentially doing a life sentence. Um, And so if that's without parole, then we think they should fall under Miller. Um, I think, you know, for the most part, because these sentences aren't, you know, in in Mississippi, a homicide sentence, whether it's second degree murder, even if it's a term of years or life sentence, it's a day for day crime. And so if it's life, you're going to die in prison. Um, but for a lot of these stacked sentences, there's parole eligibility built in. It may be at 60% for armed robbery. But if uh, so, so then you look at that and, and see when they're parole eligible. Um, and, and it may be 30 years or 40 years on some of those sentences. And those wouldn't violate the the ruling in Miller because there would be some reasonable expectation of, of relief. If you would like to participate in our discussion, we can take your questions on our email address. That address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we do hope you subscribe to our podcast. You can find it on all the podcast platforms, uh, Spotify, uh, Pod Addict, uh, Stitcher, or you can find MPB Think Radio recordings, all of them on mpbonline.org slash Radio. We're talking today about uh, juvenile life without parole sentencing with our guests, Professor Frank Rosenblatt from Mississippi College and State Public Defender Andre Degree. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about our topic, consider going to the website cfsy.org. That's the website for the 
Campaign for Fair Sentencing for Youth. And, and you know, this, this topic is so important. And I think one, one thing we were talking about during the, the break that I want to talk about on the air is really why would there ever be a life without parole? Parole is something they ha- that, uh, you know, someone has to earn. So even if they're eligible for, for parole 20 years down the road, 40 years down the road, whatever the time frame might be, they have to earn that by good behavior in prison. So why would you ever preclude that possibility? Because it's not a guarantee. And if, if I could start out, I, I can't help but put on my international law hat here for, for one second, if you'll indulge me. So it's it's very rare that, um, you know, the, all of the nations of the world can agree on certain things. And usually there's there's fractious disagreement depending on how countries are aligned. But there is one area related to children, and that's the United Nations Convention on, on the uh, Rights of the Child. And that has been um, signed and ratified by every eligible country in the world except for one. And that one country is the United States. 196 have signed. And, and that convention holds out in Article 37 that um, be, for just what you're saying, Richard, because of the nature of children and, and the development, that no child should be sentenced to LWAP for any sort of crime, that that's a violation of uh, the commitment that every nation from Sweden to Singapore has uh, has made. And so the United States has been an outlier on uh, on that. Now, I just think that's really important because, you know, within the system where we think, well, 23 states have it, that's okay, that we are really salient in the United States in terms of uh, putting children away and, and letting them die in prison. What about, I mean, is there, isn't there a, wouldn't there be a disincentive therefore to change? I mean, is that something that we should consider? Yeah, I think I think that's a, you know, not only is it sort of just bad in general for children, it's bad for the for the Department of Corrections. If if you take someone in to the Department of Corrections and you're trying your your goal in most cases is to rehabilitate someone and you have someone who it doesn't you can't offer them a program that they have any incentive to participate in, then you're going to have a problem. And there's the the only thing, and particularly as you're bringing in these 17, 18, 19-year-old kids um, who, who have not had a, a any type of regular development in society, any, that they, they are a... a problem for the prison. I think our, our current commissioner of corrections who in, had a lot of experience in Louisiana um, working at Angola prison with lifers and, and just, he was, uh, he was very successful in getting programs that he can offer them. And he's trying to introduce some of that in Mississippi, but it's if you don't ultimately have that hope of returning home, it's just hard to get people to to really want to change. Uh, they don't see any hope. They see nothing at the other end. And so where he's been able to do that and particularly where he's been able where someone can can earn, as you said, that opportunity to go before the parole board and and have everyone who who is opposed to him come forward to the parole board too it's not a one-sided uh evaluation and 
And so to, to have that opportunity is just a huge incentive. And, and we saw that in a, in a bunch of the cases we got involved with um, as we were trying to go to the court and ask for parole eligibility. We looked at some of these prison records and we were like, this guy's never going to convince a judge. And just the change in getting that hope of parole you saw the change in so many of their lives. And then you, and you had corrections officers coming in later saying that Miller decision when, when he could get into programs and he became a different person. And so, um, yeah, there, there, I think wherever you are in life, whether you're in prison or not, you have to have hope in order to, to move yourself forward. And so that's so important. Andre, you mentioned 17, 18, 19. What is the youngest that you've heard of LWAP, life without parole, uh, that uh, a, a child, a, a juvenile has been sentenced? I, I think we have a, uh, I think we had at least one 14 year old um, that they are, they, as young as 13, you can be certified or in the case of a life sentence automatically or potential life sentence automatically begin. Um, I I think there was a 14 year old that was sentenced. I don't know that he, I could check and see whether he's been resentenced, but the, the vast majority are that we're talking about are 17 year olds. And, and that sort of goes against them because the courts say, well, 18's the max. But we know from the brain science that they're really still kids until they're into their mid-20s. So uh, the majority of the of the cases we've dealt with have been 17-year-olds, and then there are some 15- and 16-year-olds. And, you know, I, I find that, you know, the the predominant focus is on the the chronological age. You know, my judge in one case emphasized that uh, – that my client was 17 years and 10 months and 13 days. And that is true. But if, if all you look at is whether this person sort of looks like an adult and can answer yes or no questions, that's really not getting the main point because my client had, uh, you know, in a way that was never really developed so that the judge could appreciate it, he had a second grade reading level. He had a mental disability and intellectual disorders where he dropped out of school in fourth grade. And, and so if you if if those facts are never presented, then all we decide is, well, this is a kid who looks like he's almost 18. Therefore, LWAP doesn't really bother us. It's, um, it, it, that's disturbing, you know, obviously. And uh, and so let's talk about um, the Mississippi Supreme Court recently uh, granted cert. So they've agreed to to hear a case involving L, uh, LWAP. What would you all talk a little bit about that case of what it involves? So the, this we've talked about the the laws evolving. Um, the Mississippi Supreme Court, after Miller decided this, the Parker case, and said what they what they called a stopgap measure, where they told the courts how to how to address these uh, in a constitutional way until the legislature acted, and and the legislature has not taken any new action on this. So what what a lot of the litigation has been about is does the does the capital sentencing statute apply to these uh, youth cases? Um, and and if so, there, there's a requirement for a jury sentencing. 
And so where we are now is we've got a decision from the Mississippi Supreme Court that says on the on the new cases, what we call new cases, post Miller cases that are coming in now that they haven't been sentenced yet. They're entitled to have a jury sentencing, just like if if it was an adult facing the death penalty. But on the old cases, the pre-Miller cases that had to be resentenced, um, the courts have said, well, that the judge, whether they're treating it as a resentencing or as a post-conviction motion, they're saying, well, the judge can do that sentencing. Um, and so one the questions that are, are presented by this cert petition, this is a this is someone who prior to Miller was automatically sentenced to life without parole. And and um, it's he was a, a co-defendant of a client I represented who was facing the death penalty. So he is um, he was not the the no one alleged that he was an actual killer. But so you have this person who was involved in a capital crime who was, I believe, 16 or 17 at the time. And as he came back for resentencing, he asked for a jury, just like like anyone who was arrested today would be entitled to. And and the court denied that. And the in the Court of Appeals following prior Supreme Court cases said, you know, we we can't uh, we can't overrule the Supreme Court and that we're we are going to approve what the judge sentencing. And so what happened is um, so the, the cert question is sort of there's actually, I think, two or three questions. But the question is, do we should we be applying the statute the legislature has adopted and, and has been on the books for decades on sentencing or do we um, do we allow one group to be sentenced statutorily by a jury and another group by court rule to be sentenced by a judge and it, and it makes a huge difference and we litigated this in in the death penalty cases the idea that you know the jury is is should be making the ultimate decision on on these extreme sentences um, as as sort of the conscious of the of the people of the community. I'm going to ask a question, then I'm going to give our guests some uh, some time to to think about it. I always encourage our listeners if you hear a law that you don't like or you hear of a law that you think we need to have, they need to uh, exercise their right and contact their legislator to to get it made, get it amended, get it fixed. Uh, is there a legislator who has uh, put forth any legislation to end this life without parole for juveniles that uh, – or, or, you know, what what exactly could our listeners tell their uh, senators and representatives? And I'm going to ask you all that. We take your questions on our email address, legalterms at mpbonline.org. We also have that new Talk to Us feature on the MPB Public Media app where you could send in a photo, a video, or leave a voice recording so you could be part of the show. Maybe if you have a suggestion for a new show you would like to hear us talk about, use that Talk to Us on the MPB Public Media 
uh, app. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. Our host is Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. At 11 a.m. Central Tuesdays, following our over-the-air broadcast, you can hear Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking with Dr. Susan Buttress here on MPB Think Radio. We are so very grateful to the legal experts who take their time, their precious time, to join us each week. Uh, Were you with us when we learned about military law? That was on June 29th of 2021, when then attorney... Uh, Frank Rosenblatt joined us. Now he is also a professor with Mississippi College. He and our state public defender, Andre Degree, are explaining our state's policy concerning, they're calling it L LWOP. That, that sounds too much like a doo-wop group. It's a juvenile life without patrol. Pearl. And, and Liz, you asked a question about legislation. Yeah. Uh... Uh, You know, sometimes, uh, I guess, uh, judges, sometimes juries uh, decide on sentencing, but sometimes it's the legislature. And it sounds like that's what's been involved in some of this uh, life, uh, juvenile life without parole. Uh, Who can we call? Who who can we contact? Well, I would just like to mention one thing that I think can happen, a change that Mississippi could make because a lot of states have been making this change lately. And this is has, goes to the unique vulnerabilities of juvenile, to the influence and impressions of adults. If a criminal defendant lies to in, investigators, then that defendant is likely to get in trouble for any sort of lies they tell. But if you flip the coin and the investigators lie to the defendant, well, that's considered an acceptable practice, and, and we're incre- a lot of states are, are you know realizing that that's one that's not um, that's not acceptable. And just an anecdote from uh, the case that I had, you know, we want these cases to be based on what you know what really happened, but these confessions are often really just the product of what law enforcement suggests. And there are a couple techniques here. One is that law enforcement will say, you're not leaving until we get the answer that I that we want. And whether that in, in interrogation takes three or four days, as long as it's short of physical torture, then it's going to be okay. But this gives a strong incentive to someone to, you know, give the investigators what they want. And the others, law law enforcement are permitted to um, suggest false information. For example, we saw you on this videotape or, you know, this evidence shows that even if that's completely made up. So that these do tend to be the kinds of things to get confessions that are what the law enforcement really wants to see rather than the actual free expression of whatever the juvenile who is under investigation actually has to say. Yeah, I think that's a good point in that this is this need for a a youth justice reform movement is bigger than just uh, the the JL WAP cases um, that that there are a lot of things that need to be fixed in in the intersection of the criminal court and the youth court. Um, But, you know, in, in list specific, we. The legislature, it's not like the legislature has ignored this. This has gone back and forth and um, and there's just no consensus on on whether, you know, we should agree to, to sentencing or one parole eligibility. We, we talked about the 27 states that have abolished it. 
Um, but they've abolished it at different, you know, the parole eligibility date may is different in different states. It's an interesting case that we're, we're that I'm following now is out of Texas. The Texas House of Representatives has just passed a bill and, and sent it on to the Senate that would they they already are on the list of of abolishing life without parole. So any any juvenile convicted in the state of Texas at the latest would have parole review after serving 40 years. Um, and, and they are talking about dropping that. The, the House has already passed, dropping that to 20 years. So this is something that's evolving. I, I don't, there are on both sides of, of this debate, uh, very strong positions. And, and that's the, the block to getting any consensus here. But hopefully, uh, as we continue to look at this and study this, um, you know, we can reach some consensus. We can, we can maybe make a difference, you know, by reaching out to our, our legislatures and uh, and saying we we need this to change. And it does, it does seem like it's something that uh, would be beneficial. And what would, um, if you could reform the, the ju- juvenile system, the youth system, what are some of the things that you would want to do, including you know, besides just uh, life without parole? I would say the starting point should be that that all juveniles begin in youth court. Um, there shouldn't be any original jurisdiction in criminal court where you then have to try to get the the case sent back to youth court. Uh, our youth court judges are specially trained to deal with with these uh, really biopsychosocial issues going on in, in young children's lives. And, and they should make the decision on whether or not to transfer a case. Um, and we should take out these, these, we have an arbitrary 15 year, if a gun is involved, you can't be transferred no matter what else is going on. So, so there's a lot, there are things like that, uh, that really we need to folk get these kids beginning in youth court and, and hopefully keep them out of, the uh, criminal system when they do finally grow up. And, uh, now what uh, what else do y'all want us to know about about this topic? We have what, what a minute left. Thirty maybe? seconds. Uh, <laughs> <there's>, <laughs> All right. Well, what, go ahead, please, Andrew. Thirty seconds. Um, yeah, there's not not much I can say in 30 seconds, but it, it is just we just need to recognize what we all know, and as parents know, we were chatting in in. You know, uh, my my kids are almost gone. I've got the last high school graduation next week. If you don't know that children think differently than adults, you have never been around a teenager. And I, I would say people who care, um, go to your local court. They are open to the public and only by going there can you see what's going on. Well, that's a great well, we'll have a field trip. Thank you so much. We are so grateful that our experts were able to join us today. Professor uh, Frank Rosenblatt, thank you for being with us. And thank you, State Public Defender Andre Degree. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms. Our team consists of uh, phone screener Jermaine Flood and our board engineer and podcast producer Abram Nanny. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi 
School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.